Hello, I'm Charles Clausen, your host of the Ampex Podcast, a show where we engage in conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are reshaping the universe where we live, play, and work. I believe these powerful conversations will inspire you to pursue your dreams. This is the Ampex Podcast. We're very excited today to have Madhu Redibojna as our special guest. Um, in addition to being an innovator and entrepreneur, um, Madhu is a, a creative and very engaged in helping people and making the world a better place. And in addition to being our guest, he's also a, a dear friend to me. So um, we have a special relationship. Um, before we get started, just so our audience understands, um, the Ampex podcast, the, the history of the name and the logo is Amp is Amplitude. And when you think about high-performance teams and coming together cognitively, whether it's Navy SEALs or high-performance sports teams or other high-performance organizations where you almost move as one and you understand each other almost without talking, the elevated states of awareness and the amplitude of the brain waves is part of that. So the amplitude is high performance um, collaborations of people. The X is exponential. So if you think about exponential, that's 10X. So organizations that can come out with new business models or solutions that are 10X um, more cost effective at one tenth the price, um, they can scale and help a lot more people. So we're all about innovators and entrepreneurs whose wild ideas are reshaping the universe where we live, work, and play. So we're going to have a fun conversation with Madhu. And um, I always like to start our interviews with um, our guests' um, early years and what inspired them and motivated them to be disruptors, innovators to look at things from a different perspective. So we'll start with that, Madhu. Cool. Sounds good. First of all, I'm very happy to be here and thanks for those kind words. Um, so my early years, uh, I can go as early as <laughs> uh, when I first started before I even started working. And I was born and raised in India. Uh, I grew up there until I was 21, 22 years old, and I moved to America about 25 years ago. Um, and uh, I've, I've been here, and this is home. So just from a career standpoint, I started my career as an engineer, software engineer, as a matter of fact, and, and working in the corporate world, as you're touching on, and how did you become innovative and uh, what I do now is obviously very different than what I've done when I started. Um, just like anything else, right? Like in your, in your 20s, you're just trying to figure out the wall, and that's what I've been doing. Um, you know, built a number of systems for auto industry and a number of different companies. And then, you know, grew up in the chain of command there, learning the ropes of what is software engineering and, you know, how does this impact a corporate wall or enterprise? And then, you know, I also had the opportunity to go work at a, um, one of the big four consulting companies and, and did that for a number of years. Uh, there you get to see a different perspective. It's not about software development or actual implementation, but it's about the impact and the value and 
you get to see the entire value chain. Um, did that for a number of years. And then, you know, and then went back to the industry, worked for, you know, a bank and another joint venture. At the end of the day, I felt like, you know, this life's too short. This life's too short. And we got to figure out a way to make the most out of this life. And for me, I was, I, I did not feel very comfortable just working under, you know, if I think about the problems that I was solving, working for somebody, it was either like building marketing programs or building pro, you know, systems that bring more foot traffic so you can sell them more and things like that. And those are cool problems to solve to really kind of learn how to do certain things, but are they intellectually stimulating? Are they intellectually um, gratifying? To me, they were not. So I was in search for what is the thing that, that helps the humanity in a way that is meaningful, right? And that's what drove me to stop my company called Ready Minds. And for me, you know, it's all about doing meaningful work. And, and that, and, and we're, we're obviously living in times when it's not that difficult to find the problems that we can solve because we have access to everything at no cost in a way, right? And, um, and that's been my driver. I hope that kind of answers the question and I didn't wanna, I'm sure we'll <laughs> dig into the details uh, as, as we kind of progress in the conversation. Well, you started out in the corporate world and you kind of moved through Deloitte Consulting. And um, at some point you started your first, your first business, your first entrepreneurial venture. So what, what was the problem you were solving and what inspired you to leave, you know, you were working for basically Fortune 500 companies or 100 companies um, to start solving um, problems that you identified where you saw a need and an opportunity? Yeah, I mean, quite honestly, just to um, be brutally honest, right? When you're starting a company that is a startup um, with no promise of paycheck, right? This is the reality that people face. This is the reason why most people don't go do what I've been doing. I've been very fortunate um, because I, I was able to um, find a customer from a services standpoint for us to develop software um, before I quit my job. And that's not something that happens very easily. And, um, and I was very fortunate but it didn't come so easily either because I've been calling on that customer for almost a year and a half, two years. And it happened two years later. And, um, and when it happened, it started. And next thing you know, we were solving, they had a existing um, technology infrastructure that wasn't working. And, you know, it's something that I know how to do pretty well. And I quickly assembled a brand new team to do that. And, you know, we got one project, one project led to two projects, two projects led to multiple projects. And next thing you know, we're two years in, you know, doing a lot of work for multiple clients at the same time. Um, so that was kind of, you know, how it all started. I mean, problems that we started solving are somewhat operational in nature, to be brutally honest. It was nothing innovative because that's what happens when you're an entrepreneur. You have to take whatever you get 
because it's not easy to start a company and sustain and survive. Um, so I've done that, but then, you know, and then we were able to start some innovative projects um, that are really futuristic in AI and applications of AI and computer vision and so on and so forth. I mean, that, um, that, that's interesting that you're talking about operational problems and I, I'm, I'm going to do a little transgression here. So there's been a lot of, lot of talk on financial radio about what the Federal Reserve is going to do next. What's the, um, the are we going to have a, a 50 or a 25 basis point raise in interest rates and the whole discussion around um, inflation rates, wage inflation, employment rates. And I, I heard something this morning that was very interesting, which on Bloomberg Radio, which was the first time I heard this, but it made so much sense to me. And they were talking about um, labor inflation rates. <clears throat> and they were talking about inflation in general. And this, this lady who I thought was incredibly insightful, because I haven't heard this in the, the, last, the last year of all these dialogues, is you've got to look at the wage, um, wage rate increases in light of productivity gains. And if you look at productivity gains in the last 10 years in organizations doing operational stuff like you're talking about with AI and automating things and improving workflows, mm -hmm. if you're getting a, a 5, 10, 15% efficiency gain through better operations, you can afford to pay a 3 to 5% salary increase to keep good people. So how do you calculate the real um, cost of inflation and the real labor rates? And what is the net net? And it seems like the Federal Reserve is kind of maybe stuck in the 1970 Paul Volcker mindset of, you know, you got to control inflation and it's got to be 2%. But if the core productivity increase in, um, in our workforce is 5 to 7%, which I know in our, my medical products companies, we could get 7% cost out and do it 20 years in a row. Um, and then you start adding some of these new technologies and sensors and robotics, um, then those productivity efficiencies aren't gonna stop. So I, I think what I'm circling back to is the fact that you're helping organizations with operational issues, applying technology, AIs to make their operations better, that, that can offset, you know, higher labor rates. And, you know, when you start engaging robotics and manufacturing, that can also offset the lack of workers who want to work in a turkey processing plant. So, you know, what you're doing, the nuts and bolts of what you're doing, I think is a major offset that the Federal Reserve is forgetting about that it may, you know, our core inflation rate may be three and a half or 4%. And that might be all right, because as a whole, when you look at these exponential entrepreneurs that are getting 10x, if you take out a thousand percent of the cost of the new business model and you impact a billion people, that offsets three and a half percent core inflation. So that just triggered a thought that I think people need to keep in the back of their minds when you're looking at where we are in society. And you know how businesses are evolving that it's these old metrics from the 70s probably aren't realistic anymore given where we are yeah no you're you're probably very right i'm not a very economics um 
savvy as you are. Um, but I, I, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. If I understand, you know, if we improve the operational efficiency of any business, whatever that is, however we do that, whether it is automation, whether it is, you know, unwiring some legacy technology and put in a new technology that is better in a lot of different ways, um, you know, that obviously has some bottom line impact. And, and you're, the point you're making is it should offset the issues we're running into with the labor market, right? The labor market where, you know, the, the wages need to go up because of inflation and, and you need to now spend more to do the same thing or same work. Right. So you're essentially saying, you know, the operational efficiency improvement is an important aspect of any enterprise. And, and that is a good way to look at it to say, you know, this is also innovative in a way to topple with what's happening in the market. Yeah. 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 Well, we talked a little bit about um, the human psyche and ego um, before we got started. And we talked about linear change and exponential change. Yeah. And, you know, because we're both students of Peter DeMondis and Abundance 360, we're immersed in these uh, meta technology changes and how they're going to change every aspect of our life. And I think there's most of the, the people in the United States are probably more afraid of AI and machine learning and robotics and sensors um, than are, are supportive of it. But I think, you know, part of the reason this podcast was initiated was to ignite the curiosity of people to learn more, to understand these technologies. So, you know, supercomputing and um, cloud storage and sensors have changed everything. You can have, you know, in a five to 10 years, there'll be billions of people that have instant access to anything they want to know. But um, as humans, our, our challenges are so great. And the only way we work ourselves out of this mess that we've created is to leverage technologies. And you may have a turkey processing plant that has um, humans that are processing turkeys, which I can't imagine doing in Iowa in the heat of the summer. Yeah. But you can get robotics that will do that 24 seven robots um, and won't complain. And, you know, I have a, a friend that's in the AI robotics business and they're talking to Mars candy company. They can't hire people to run their manufacturing line. So they will provide them robots for eight bucks an hour. That'll work 24 seven um, and guarantee serviceability that replace 15 hour um, employees, but they can't hire the employees. So you either shut down the plant. So there is roles for us humans um, that where we can collaborate and work with um, AI and robotics. You know, maybe we drive the forklifts and maybe we're, you know, engaged in more customer service, but I don't think people have to be afraid of uh, AI and, you know, these emerging technologies. Now there's always a dark side to technology. There can be, but there's also an upside. So, you know, I'm tr trying to encourage everyone to think about how it can help your business or you personally and um, how it can help humans redefine how we <laughs> engage in the universe because now we're we're finding ways to travel to Mars and to you know 
turn space into part of our our domain. So it's you know it's it's big, but it can also be scary. And you play right you play right in the middle of all of this. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Um, let's talk about AI. Like, let's talk about this, right? I think um, you know the points you're making. If I were to, I mean, this is probably what we hear every time anybody talks about AI. There's a pool of cohort of population out there that says it's bad, it's gonna take away jobs and it's gonna hurt the economy and so on. And then there's the pool of people that are all about AI was gonna change the way we live, it's gonna improve the quality of life and so on and so forth. And I think, you know, I definitely fall in that category because I think some of it is the ones that are afraid are the ones that um, probably don't want to change, perhaps. Maybe they don't want to adopt something new because they don't feel like they have the energy to do it, perhaps. Again, this is all my assumptions. Right. Um, but the thing at the end of the day, I can talk about my own experience with it, right? I think what all I've done so far and, and the things that we're using, I mean, AI is all pervasive before you know it and they're already here. I mean, there's so many things that are um, available as utilities that you can put to work right now as SaaS products, like right now as SaaS products, right? There's so many of them. And that's only going to go exponentially high. And, and the ones that are tuned into those things are going to be so much more productive. And they're going to beat everybody that is not using these utilities, because these are almost like superpowers that you have at your hand tips, the tips of your hands, right? And, um, and that, I mean, I'll give you the example of ChatGPT, right? And as soon as it's announced, as soon as we started seeing it, we've been using it for a lot of our own internal work, which we were super thrilled with. And we were super, um, you know, and, and there are so many other examples of that. I mean, I, I don't want to get into too much of just ChatGPT, but that's just one example. But there's also tools for, you know, taking meeting notes and all of that. Those are all AI-based NLP processing and so on, and giving you action items that you can take, which takes human to spend a lot of time and energy to do. Now I can do a lot more with a lot less of my time. And I can train my team to do even more, <laughs> right? So it's just an exponential way of productivity growth that you know we can continue to see as it evolves. I mean, that to me is, and I obviously we both are coached by Peter, and he's super optimistic about the future as, as we all should. And I think the responsibility for those of us who are enlightened and understand the possibilities and, and what, is, um, what is coming is to educate the masses that aren't, right? And hence, you know, I adore you for what you're doing through this podcast. And I think part of it is also people come listen to this because they get to understand real life scenarios of how this futuristic world of technology is going to augment our ability to perform or our ability to do whatever we're doing. And you know that, that to me should be the way, way to go. And more and more of champions like us are able to educate more and more people. And I think this is gonna happen over time, right? Over time, I feel like, yeah, there's always gonna be in a bell curve, you know, there are early adopters and those that are laggers and the, you know, the critical mass will move <laughs> accordingly in its own time pace, pace of time. Right. Yeah, th those are great points, Madhu. And I think, I mean, the, the S-curve on the evolution of uh, AI, machine learning, all these SaaS tools you talk about, I mean, we're way up the curve. I mean, we're st we have a long uh, straight up um, 
section of the curve to go, but it's not just beginning. It's impacting everybody's lives from your, your thermostats to your security systems, you know, your doorbell shows you who's ringing the doorbell, um, and technology impacts so much of our lives. But if we start thinking about how can technology be our partner, you know, how can we use, um, information and, you know, the increasing our health span and our human longevity, you know, there's a lot of people saying they're going to live to 120 to 150 years and they're right, but it's new evolutions and, you know, human health and eliminating disease. Um, you know, Dean Camus, when we, when he talked to us last March in um, Beverly Hills, he's working on these human organ projects that by the end of this decade, they'll be printing hearts, um, kidneys, livers, pancreases that can be inserted into you to replace a bad heart or, you know, a pancreas that's got cancer or something. And this is this decade, this is in the next seven years, this will be reality. So they're, I mean, they're, they're making huge shifts. Um, and I mean, the technology is just exciting, but you know, on the other side of the excitement coin is the fear. And, you know, I think as people understand how it can help them in their lives, whether it's work play or just, you know, general living, um, yeah. and there's, there's things that are going to have to change in our human societal models right now there's too much polarization and too much anger and you know we have to find a way um to f come back to the middle and um reduce some of the hatred and anger and start figuring out how we can take some of the new time we have because of these technologies that are making our life better that are helping with the environmental issues and with water issues and with health issues and so there's going to be a lot of redefinition of what society looks like and how humans engage. But, you know, I think empathy and compassion are, well, will help us a lot if people could just slow down. And um, no, absolutely. And I think you made a really good point about obviously empathy and, and, and compassion you know, I want to go back to when you said there's a lot of hatred, just so I understand you're talking about the political polarity or are you talking about just in general? Well, I mean, there, there is political polarity and there's religious, religious extremes and fanatics. And, yeah, you know, I think um, they're, they're just, you've got Muslims, you've got Jews, you've got Christians, you've got Catholics, you've got atheists, and they can all find a way to be in peace and harmony with their own beliefs, but not, judge someone else because they have a different belief or, yeah. and, and it's, you know, it's complicated because we have our societies, we have our family traditions and cultures, and we have, you know, the proximity to who we hang out with. So we, as humans develop all these programs and emotional responses. And sometimes we respond to old programs that may not be appropriate for what we're experiencing today. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think I understand what you're saying about, uh, but quite honestly, I try to stay away from um, even, I, I don't even let my brain think that way, right? Because I, I don't even think 
of political polarity, I treat everybody about the same because I think I kind of train myself to do that because it helps enormously because it keeps me in a good state of mind all the time, right? Being in a good state of mind is where, you know, I'll, I'll actually switch the gears and I'll tell you something about what I've been doing in the last month. Maybe this would actually be very interesting for you. Great. Because I didn't, I didn't share this with you before. Um, ever since I had this, I went to this spiritual event um, in October in Mexico. Um, it's with Tony Robbins and, and this whole bunch of close to 200, 300 people were there that were all part of this Tony Robbins Platinum pro Program. And it's an eight-day program or seven, I was there at least for eight days. It's, it's essentially a lot of meditation, slowing down the things you're talking about. You know, how do you slow down and, and um, just see things and put things in perspective. And I, I had this revelation of um, understanding my own brain and psyche, right? It's, uh, you know, there is this deep force that came out of me that I just, I was just crying, thinking about, wow, I came from, you know, slums of India, where, you know, it's a scarcity mindset and you, you know, the ecosystem that I grew up in wasn't designed for people to get out of the poverty that I was in. Um, but I came out. And not only that, I brought my entire family out of it. And, and I'm here, I have a life that I never thought I would, I, you know, never thought I would even, um, it, this life wasn't even in my imagination as I was growing up in those circumstances, right. And I, you know, I just reflected on my life in that journey in, in that uh, spiritual trip. And I realized, man, this life is so short. You know, we all work with a blueprint that we have, right? What is this blueprint? Blueprint is essentially how you make decisions, right? The rules that we stack up in our heads. And I started unwinding my own blueprint. Like anytime I see somebody and I judge, where did this come from? Anytime I, um, you know, have this negative reaction to anything, where did this come from? I was able to like unwind and come back. And this is something, it's a practice that I'm doing, which I think is like very healthy practice. Like as we're talking about AI and future and how it's going to disrupt this, that, and the other thing, there is a part of it. We all need to be aware of the fact that, you know, this life is so short, we're going to vanish pretty soon. I went, in, as I was reflecting on this, I went and I thought about, you know, I am here today. If I think about like four or five generations before me, I don't even know what their life is like, right? And I barely think about them. I don't even think about them. Maybe that was the first time I actually thought about them in, in that spiritual trip. I said, wow, I am here because of, you know, if I look at my ancestry and you and I are going to become that eventually through our own lineage, right? right? We'll just become a thought if that, if somebody even chooses to think about that. So we're all just like kind of going through this, like, you know, uh, a pipe of life and, you know, we, we perish, something else will start and, and so on. And think of, now I think about like this whole evolution that we're in, there are much bigger things in this world that we don't know anything about. The, the simplest investment that we can make in is about how do you understand yourself? That is actually the best investment that anyone can make in themselves because that helps you figure out uh, where you want to go. 
because that gives put things in perspective. Because when you unwind your own blueprint, you kind of like unwind a lot of things that you stacked up over time, right? And that that to me is a very different. I'm obviously I'm I'm just a brand new student that enrolled and registered into this spirituality, so I'm still learning. But whatever I'm learning, I just get so better at managing myself and looking at things so differently than what I used to as a young entrepreneur or, you know, even few, I would say even earlier last year, the way I used to think about things are so different than the way I think about now. I just let everything flow instead of putting any kind of blockages or giving it a conditional happiness or, or whatever. It's just mostly very much let the life flow and see where it takes you. Because that's how my life has been. Like I flew all the way from poor slums in India to here. Yes, I did my part, but I don't need to worry so much as much as I did in the past. Right. Um, I don't know if this is making any sense to you, but this no, it makes ab absolute sense, Madhu. And you know, we're both kind of creative spirits and, and innovators, and you know. I'm a, a big student of Krishnamurti and um, he talks about how you, to truly be creative, you have to be fully present in this moment, which I think is um, another way of saying your flow, because if you are totally present in this moment and you're not bringing up what happened last week, last year, what happened in your childhood yeah. um, as these old programs, which are programmed in your neural pathways. If yeah. you can um, stay present um, and totally focused on this moment, yeah. you're in a beautiful flow. Yeah. And then everything has the potential to create something totally new. Because if you bring all your prior experiences into this moment, you're just recreating your prior experiences. If you're yeah. flowing in this moment and yeah. totally present, yeah. And, you know, listening with the person on the other, other side, yes. you have the opportunity to create something beautiful and new that never existed before. And you're not bogged down by these old memories, programs, and fears that drive so many people in society that they're fearful that they're not going to have a job. They don't know how they're going to pay for their next meal. They, they're going to lose their home. Well, that, that place of fear creates um, a lot of chaos and it's hard to be present when you don't know how you're going to put a roof over your head yes and yes. so you know there's millions of people that are just getting by i think 60 percent of the people in the u.s live paycheck to paycheck yeah and that's a scary a scary thing if you've got two or three kids and a rent to pay and a, a car payment and you know i think as humans we we need to figure out how to create a society where people can, you know, at least everyone can have some minimum level. And we've got, you know, the, the multi-billionaires soon we'll have trillionaires that have so much of the world's wealth, right. but there's so many people that don't have anything. And, you know, how can we make the world a better place? But this flow state yeah. of being in the moment allows yeah. you to live fully. I mean, you're living this moment fully. You're not thinking about where you're going to be tomorrow or next week because you are here. Yes. And now I'm here with Charles and I am 100% present with Charles. And that's all I'm going to focus on. Nothing else. Nothing else. 
man, that is powerful. I, I was not able to do that in the past. Believe me, I was the biggest victim of my brain is always thinking about what could go wrong, right? I mean, this is probably true for pretty much all of us. What could go wrong? And then we come up with all these scenarios of like how many times or how many different ways you can get, you know, something could go wrong. And then you generate these fearful emotions that is nothing more than suffering state. You just keep on suffering on, by yourself, just thinking about those scenarios that were not even real. They're just thoughts. And then you just live with those emotions. And then next thing you know, you're around, surrounded by your family, but you're not really there. You're just suffering by yourself inside. Man, that was me not too long ago. Now, thank God for that trip. Thank God for what I've done. I, I've kind of rewinded all this. Like I really kind of like anytime I found myself in this situation, now I have some tools and techniques and I only wish that we can give these tools and techniques to as many people as possible. I think, believe me, the 60 person you're talking about, they probably live that way, right? They're yeah. about the next thing. Like, what do I do? Oh shit, oh shit, if I lose this job, what do I do kind of thing, right? How do I put food on the table? I mean, that, that to me is an optimistic world where everybody around us are aware of what's happening. You know, another thing, actually, the simplest thing I can tell you, right? I think this is a realization. We all have all these organs in our body, right? Right. Your liver, liver function is very clear what it does. You have a heart, you know what it does. We have a brain. And, and the thing is, most people don't realize that brain is just another organ in your body. But the brain controls our state all the time because we end up letting the brain do that. And I realized that that's one of the biggest gifts I gave myself is when I, as soon as I realized that I had this situation where, you know, anytime I'm feeling not so good, it's usually because of a thought that generated that emotion, right? Right. The simplest technique I learned to do is just acknowledge that thought. Don't let it go or don't hide it or don't make it look like it doesn't exist. It does exist. All it is, is your brain as a organ, it's doing its job by bringing up that thought to make sure that it's always looking after you, right? Acknowledge that and say, brain, thank you for doing your job. But now let me take control of it. Right. You come out and you don't, you don't get suffering out of that thought. You just move, move on from it. That's a simple technique. Dude, ever since I've been putting that to work, I sleep so much better. <laughs> I, sleep <laughs> so much better. I, don't, I don't get bogged down by any of these you know, thoughts that come in my head, which my brain is wired to think, wired to do. That's what it is supposed to do. And it's doing its job. Just acknowledge that, but always know who you are. That is a beautiful state of mind. And with simple techniques like that makes a big, huge difference in the way we live our lives. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the flow state, um, so you've got your conscious brain, which is all can be thinking all the time. Yes. So, you know, I could be in this conversation with my friend Madhu yeah. and, and he's talking and I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next and not even listening to what he's saying, or I could get out of my conscious mind. I could move into my subconscious mind and I could just be, and I can listen and feel then something is going to flow out of me, but it's flowing out of this moment. And it, you know, you've got your gut, which is your second brain, and you've also got your heart, which has 
um, lots of cells that can engage intuition and feelings. But, you know, when you're coming from a, your heart and the way we talk about this as humans is that, you know, a place of love yeah. and we can define love lots of ways, but, you know, being compassionate and kind and listening yeah. and in the moment, then you get into that flow state where you're not in your ego mind, which is running rampant and has all these fears that are bringing up all these old neural pathways and reactions and emotions. I mean, yeah. most of our emotions we learned when we were kids or some other place, but if you can be present in the flow of the current moment, yes. totally, and not bring up those old emotions and responses and just respond based on where you are in this, this yeah. moment and this conversation, then you have a beautiful flow that's always unique and original because it's not being directed by some old fear in your neural pathways. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's um, once you figure out how to get there, it's a yeah. beautiful place. <laughs> yeah. So many people struggle with this. What you just said is actually me. That was me. So what I used to do um, was I had like these bad experiences from the past where, oh man, I got screwed in that situation and I did not like that. And that was a very bad experience. And I feel like crap when that, I felt like crap when that happened. So remember, I'm just telling you a historic thought. Right? right. I played that freaking thought and felt that exact same feeling so many times after that event occurred. So many times. Most of us, if we don't understand this flow state thing that we're talking about, they will keep on playing the same old stories or same old incidents that happened in the past that gave them bad experiences and then relive those bad experiences over and over and over and suffer. That happens to all of us. Man, I just wish that, you know, whoever's listening to this or watching this can understand what I'm saying and put that to work because that's going to change your life. The change the way you feel, the change the way you, you live and recognize that that's just a freaking thought that happened in the past. There's nothing you can do about it other than, you know, just move on from it. Otherwise you were just going to relive the same moment in suffering. You don't need to. Absolutely. And it, being in the flow of the moment changes the relationships you have with everyone, your spouse, your partner, your children, your business colleagues, because you're, you're engaged at a much higher level. It's, you know, that amplitude that I'm talking about earlier in AmpX is this cognitive state where yes. when you're flowing in the moment and you're in your heart and not in your ego, yes. then you connect with people at a higher resonance and you're, then you're, your, your brain waves actually start to sink yes. and, and the amplitude of the waves gets higher and it, yeah. it, it can change every aspect of your life. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy and yet it's so hard. <laughs> right. I, but, but with some practice and some focus, everybody can get there with some practice and with some focus, everybody can get there quite honest. So, I mean, another thing I learned is just like, this is very simple. Just the breathing techniques that people have, like you can learn some, simple breathing techniques that actually change the way you feel you let go of some of those things and it didn't come easy for me but i had to practice once i practiced it practiced it practiced it i got so much better at it if, if you want i'll tell you one simple technique that i think i don't know if this is something that you do or not um where you're uh, you know kind of helping your audience with these little tactics right? exactly no please 
So there is a, so this is not mine. I learned it from somebody by name, Mark Devine. He's a Navy SEAL. Um, I saw him speak like last year sometime. Ever since I, I hear him speak, this guy is just an amazing guy. He's like one of those people that you meet him, you will never forget him. Mark Devine is his name. So he has this breathing technique called box breathing. Okay, box breathing is nothing but you just breathe in, you hold there for the same amount of time, and then you exhale, and then you hold there again for the same amount of time. I'll demonstrate it really quick so you understand how, how to do it. So when you do this, what it does is it essentially focuses and lets, lets you just stay focused and not just go all over the place, right? It's a simple breathing technique. It's like this. So you essentially breathe for how you can count for four seconds, five seconds, whatever it is, or 10 seconds, you breathe and then you hold your breath for the same amount of time. And then you exhale for the same amount of time, right? And you don't breathe for the same amount of time. And then you breathe again. So that's like a box breathing. And I'm sure there is a lot of scientific explanation for how effective it is, but that changed my life. It's no, I, I, if you go back in Eastern traditions and various yoga traditions, they have all kinds of breath work, but you could, you could actually take that technique and I'm sure you're doing it. If you're in a stretch, stressful situation in a personal relationship or yes. at work, you can do that breathing and almost probably within three or four breaths, you're, you calm down, yes. your mind is clear and all yeah. the anxieties that were starting to blow up just fade away. And it's, it's yeah. simple. These techniques are simple, but yet incredibly power, powerful. Absolutely. And we don't know that nobody teaches this stuff unless you pursue it and unless you seek it. Right. And that's the, I mean, I wish they teach this stuff in school for kids, right? This is simple, basic, fundamental stuff, right? If we teach this stuff to kids, because we're just, you know, they're learning more stress activators, right? That's all they're learning. They need to, if they, if they learn these simple techniques, that would change the way they feel and how they process the world too, to a certain extent, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that that's very helpful. And I, I think that some of this is, is by design. Um, yeah. the, the patriarchs and various organizations don't want the masses to be calm and reflective. They, they want to increase the level of, anxiety and frustration and it's it's um it's not healthy but i think we have a major crisis in our school systems in this country and you know there's amazing content that you can get out there on any topic yes. um that you can get on the internet and there's virtual and augmented reality coming that's going to change the whole dynamic of education but yes. here in iowa city we have the scanlon center for school mental health and it's dealing with students um, K through college, and it's also dealing with teachers and administrators. And you know, sixteen percent of the, the young people in Iowa, before they graduate, have tried attempted suicide. And wow. you know, bringing these techniques um, into schools. I mean, I think schools going to become more, much more about teaching people how to emotionally stay grounded yeah. and to um, 
perform and to relate, you know, and yeah. the, these kids that they spend eight or 10 hours a day in the metaverse, their yeah. social skills. Um, and we could get on a whole conversation about the importance of play and have some podcasts on that and how in young kids getting outside and playing has a yeah. lot to do with their cognitive de development and their brain size and their intelligence. And, you know, yeah. stripping that away has an adverse effect, but that's, um, you know, in the Denver school systems, they used to have a, a, um, a mindfulness-based meditation program in the school system. I assume it's still there. I used to contribute to that, but it, it makes a big difference if you teach kids at a young age. I mean, how hard is it to teach a kid to breathe in for two or three seconds, to hold it for four, yeah. blow it out for two seconds, hold it for four? Yeah. You know, when you're starting to feel anxious or you, uh, something is bothering you, just breathe. And it, it literally, it's a half a dozen breaths and you're in a different place. I mean, it's so simple, but yet we as society don't teach these things and it's been around for thousands of years. So, you, you know, you wonder why, because um, it can make such a, such an impact. Yeah. And the you know, quality of life of people around us. And that obviously becomes quality of life for us because if we're interacting with people around us that are a lot more calmer, you know, goes back to the vibration conversation. You're talking about the vibrations that come out of each other is going to be a lot more creative and we can create a lot more, you know, beautiful world in the beautiful future. Right. So the, um, um, just to remind the audience, our four pillars of the Ampex podcast are disruptive technology and how it's changing the world, human connection, <clears throat> and how we maintain human connections uh, as these everything in our lives changes. Then the, the future of work. Then the last one is grounding in nature. How you use nature is an augmentation to the breath. I mean, the breath work is incredibly powerful. You can be anywhere, any place. You don't have to get outside yeah. in nature and get in the grass and your bare feet. And if just by simple breathing, yeah. it, can, it can change your life and help you be present. But um, coming back to disruptive technologies and human connections, I mean, you, you play in um, cybersecurity for financial institutions and bank. You're you're doing work in um, 3D imaging so you can show yeah. patients <clears throat> what their current state of their whole body looks like and where the cancer is, then the future state where you're, you're helping to educate and communicate with patients, you know, what's going on in a, a, a 3D way that's it's meaningful. So lots of technologies. <clears throat> How do you... Um, let's let's explore the the human connection and the human dynamics um from a work perspective in a minute given all the changes that you're helping organizations with um customers how do you work with with your team to help um keep them connected and communicative and um you know on the same page yeah just from a, a culture so let's call it a culture of disruption because you're you're building disruptive solutions. So how do you, you, and you, in your organization, do you build a culture of innovation where people stay focused and committed and excited about what they're doing? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I can probably talk about it from the perspective of, you know, I obviously have different teams that work on different types of projects and different types of outcomes, if you will, right? And um, let's take the example of this whole, 
you know, the 3D reconstruction of a human body, right? From a CT scan or an MRI of a patient. Obviously, if somebody is getting a CT scan or an MRI, it's not a simple ailment. They have something major going on in their body, right? Something's happening. And um, usually either somebody has some sort of cancer or tumor. I mean, there's also other forms of other reasons for it, but generally speaking, that's what we end up seeing. Um, so team culture is one question. And then there's also the effect and the impact of the types of work, type of work that we're doing on the end users, which in this case is the patient and the clinicians, right? And um, so we envisioned this project based on the work that we've done in the past, you know, over the course of last three and a half, four years, right? And this is about patient education. And I think, you know, our culture is very innovative in that, you know, I don't, again, again, I am not the smartest kid or smartest guy in the, in the room. So I, I was successful at attracting the right kind of people that have the right skill set. Right. So we have radiologists on the team. We have, you know, game engine developers on the team. We have software engineers and developers on the team. And they're all, they all come from, you know, different backgrounds doing different things. But what brings them together and binds them together is the vision for what we're trying to create for the end user or the end ultimate, you know, recipient of our work in a way, right? And uh, I'll give you a perfect example of how we actually accomplished that. So we had a patient, it was a 50 year old patient. She uh, was diagnosed with, uh, with, with um, abdominal cancer. She has cancer all over her intestines and, and her bladder and, and, and her uterus and such. And um, so this was about a year and a half ago I'm, I'm, to give you the context of it. And uh, she, you know, she didn't know she had cancer. Right. And all one day she goes in and that's what happens. And they essentially take a CT scan of her. Um, and, and then they put her on a chemo right away and chemo didn't work on her. So, so it took about six weeks or so to find out that chemo didn't work. So they ended up um, operating on her right away because they had to take the tumor out. And when they did that, you know, they had to uh, do ileectomy, uh, which is essentially you have some way to pass the waste on the side, right? So, um, so she went through the surgery and then they did another CT scan six months after the surgery to see if, if there's any kind of metastasis anywhere in the body. So they, it was a pretty long, gruesome surgery, apparently close to like 12 plus hours of surgery. Right. They removed all of that and they essentially created another CT scan. So what we did was, you know, the, the thought was this patient has no idea what was going on with her. Right. She's, you know, first thing is she's mortified knowing that she has cancer. And the next thing is, you know, she goes through the chemo that didn't work. So doctors operate on her for a long time. And that all she can do is just pray. Right. And I hope I, I will be okay and my kids will be okay and so on. So we wanted to, what if we kind of take the CT scans of this patient before and after and reconstruct her entire body in a way that she can visually see what's happening inside of her? not just this, you know, not just living based off of what everybody's telling her. Right. And uh, that was kind of what the ethos for that project was. And when we did that and, you know, that vision brought the team together and everybody knew exactly what we're after, what we're trying to do. And we were able to build that. And, and, and when we showed this to that patient, I cannot imagine the expressions of her on her face, right? How much she appreciated the understanding 
right? A lot of patients go through this, especially, you know, if you're not educated enough, you know, you're just always just listening to what the doctor is saying and you just kind of live your life and just pray, right? And being able to um, educate the patient on what's going on was an incredibly powerful um, theme that, that brought the team together, right? And that was, that was very, very helpful. And, you know, even the clinicians that were uh, involved were very, very um, thankful that we were able to do something like that. So I guess the, you know, I, I kind of answered two things. The culture was really defined based on a vision that is very clear, everybody can relate to it and it's heartfelt. It's not just some, um, you know, some, something that doesn't have deeper meaning. And that helped with the culture, right? And that also helped with our ability to like execute and get something done. And that, you know, that to me is, is kind of how we've always operated. And we worked on a bunch of other projects where we were building, um, you know, AI computer vision models to detect um, specific anatomical objects of interest during laparoscopic surgeries. And, uh, you know, again, the AI tools are continuing to evolve. And, and that's something that we will, you know, continue to see as, you know, as we both know, the use cases for AI is just infinite. I just can't even count. Nobody can count. There's so much, so much out there. And I'm just grateful that we're available. We're living right now and we have all the tools we have at our disposal. You know, if we just cut out all the noise and get focused on something, you know, this is the time for us to be able to go do something meaningful with our lives before we, we die. Absolutely. So as in your culture, in your company, how many employees do you have, Madhu? Under 20. So, um, well, you know, approximately 20 employees and the work that you're doing, the projects that you're bringing in are all purposeful, are doing something good to help humanity. And your culture, what do you experience in terms of, is there any such thing as quiet quitting or people that are passive aggressive in your organization? Or do you have people that are excited about coming to work and they show up and they just want to dig in and solve problems, you know? What's been your experience and your, your high-tech company and how you hire people and how you build a culture where they're excited about coming to work every day? I mean, we, we have a pretty, at least I, I feel like I have a pretty good idea of how to recruit the right type of people, right? And, and that, you know, it's a lot of it is trail and error. Like I got burned. I have a lot of scar tissue from poor <laughs> recruitment processes. <laughs> But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, there is a certain type of individuals that, you know, we want to work with and we attract. And I don't just typically hire people in just for because, you know, they're willing to work, right? It's more like, okay, what is this person really about? Are they really trying to do some impactful work or are they looking to make money? I mean, there's nothing wrong with making money. There's a lot of different ways to do that. And people do that all the time. I think majority of people are driven by, I want to make more money. Sure, do that. Not that you don't make any money working on meaningful work, but it's not the only thing, right? right. That's the, the criteria. Um, some of, you know, so I have figured out, you know, a way to attract the right type of talent is because, you know, we talk to them about these types of mission-driven things. If they get excited about it, you'll get to see that. You you want you see that it doesn't it doesn't take much to see who gets attract you know excited by it. 
And even the questions that they ask you in the interview, you'll understand where they're coming from, right? And then you'll be able to see, is this somebody who's um, in it to learn and make a difference? Or is it is it somebody who, you know, is not really going to be a good fit? So culture fit is a very important aspect of, of our recruiting process. Um, and typically, you know, we work on some kind of pilot or something together before we ever kind of invest in a, in a longer term relationship, right? So you, you've worked with them on a, uh, on something that could have been a customer or they could, and somehow you've engaged and you just had the chance to see how they work. And then, um, exactly, exactly. I mean, that's the case, even for, even if I'm hiring contractors to do some things and that's kind of common in this industry, because you can't afford to keep everybody on payroll all the time. Right. Right. Uh, um, even for contractors, right? So I typically give everybody a benefit of doubt, right? Unless they prove it otherwise. And that just means that, you know, let's, let's put ourselves in a place where we are working with each other. Even there's no long-term commitment here. Let's just see what it's like to do that. And when we do that, and that helps us to kind of see, be in the trenches and work on it. And how do you think about things? How do you react to things? And how do you, you know, come up with solutions? Or are you always thinking about, solving a problem or are you like being a little high maintenance or whatever <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you get to understand that and once we kind of go through that phase usually you know for us when we we have our internship program typically you know especially for ex not for experienced hire but hires that are like in the early stages of their career we typically do a internship program you know every summer and about 30% of them are jumps and 70%, you know, they have other agenda or other things. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's like, right. essentially we teach them things that they can't learn anywhere else. They get to work on problems that are bigger than all of us. Right. And that's what to me is motivating. And some people, you know, get excited about it. Not everybody does. And that's okay. Um, that's why we have <laughs> the bell curve. <laughs> right. So do you have any concerns about being able to staff your organization going forward with uh, either full-time employees or with contractors? Have you had any struggles with just getting people to get the projects you've got done? So far, I would say I've been pretty lucky, but, you know, again, I am not trying to become, you know, the next big company out there, right? I'm conscious about my growth. And I'm conscious, I'm, I have a pretty good life, pretty good lifestyle. I get to work on some really important, useful, meaningful things. And I get to hang out with, you know, people like you doing this and not worried about, oh shit, that guy quit or that guy quit or whatever. I don't want to deal with any of that. So I have certainty, you know, I, I decent size enough that we're, we bring certainty to our clients. We bring certainty to our customers and we bring certainty to our partners. And, you know, in that brings us keeps us in a flow state i don't need unnecessary entropy in my life right <laughs> 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 i mean for some it may be important and useful but to me we still are making progress we still are doing we're very conscious of you know what makes sense how much to grow and some of it is very opportunistic right and i only want to grow in certain areas and on certain other areas if it if it makes sense we'll do it if not no got it so I, I think there's one last area that I'd like to touch on, Madhu, before we we call her quits, and that is um, kind of the last pillar of um, being grounded in nature um, to try to stay focused and in that flow state. 
And, you know, nature is a big part of my identity. Yeah. Um, spending time outside in our Zen forest, we were, we're blessed that we have a resident bald eagle and blue herons and barred owls and pleated woodpeckers. So it's, and it's seven miles from downtown, but it's like a wild place, uh, wow. the, the quarry and a cliff and pond. So, you know, I'm out there every day and I find that in nature, that flow state, when you're not in your conscious mind, when you're in your subconscious mind and you're just aware of everything going on around you, things start to float into your conscious mind that solve problems or challenges or opportunities that you've got in work or in, in other aspects of your life where answers just start coming to you and you're not even really thinking about them, but you know, things just come to you um, yeah. while you're, while you're fully present in the moment, you're aware of everything, the birds singing and, you know, there's a mushroom over here and this uh, rhododendron's got a beautiful pink blossom and you're just a, you're just paying attention. Yes. But you know, in this state, this flow state in nature, lots of things, mysterious things just happen. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know if you that have. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think again, I'm, my theory of this is if you think about it, you know, we're all made up of, you know, a bunch of cells at the end of the day, you can count what we have in our body on a periodic table, right? It's essentially <laughs> what we are, right? And, and, and the universe formed from those elements, right? And that includes what you're seeing in nature. When you're in nature, you're where you're supposed to be and where you belong. And it almost feels like every cell in your body is going to work because it almost felt like I just you know, I, I'm just close to my family <laughs> of other cells, right? right. And, and, you know, at, at, at atomic level, that's what it is, right? We're all a bunch of atoms that are made up of, you know, it, it looks like flesh, but, you know, two thirds of our body is just water. <laughs> and right. we have all these other organs that are doing their job because that's what we're wired to do and that's what it's wired to do. And to me, I feel like, you know, nature not just feel like it is true for me as well because um i one day you know i when i was at that spiritual retreat i was sitting you know in front of the ocean i you know i was so emotionally connected but at the same time that enlightenment of like being able to see what i did not see in your burden like your day-to-day -day of whatever you're doing that is away from the nature just looking right. out in the stars which is obviously where we all came from one way or another right we're all stardust <laughs> right exactly right? Looking at the stars. i mean that to me is probably what you're describing again this is my theory i'm no expert at this i'm just still a student just kind of like looking at my world through that lens to see how nature's impacted me another thing that happens to me uh charles that you know, anytime I go to sleep with a big problem, like I was trying to solve a problem, solve a problem, I couldn't find an answer. I go to sleep, I wake up with an answer. It's crazy. It happened to me so many times. You know, it just means that I slowed down enough when I'm sleeping where my subconscious mind is like focused on solving the problem. It does that. And I wake up with an answer with that. Like I know exactly what I need to do. I have so many examples of that. And that's for another day. I mean, that's, that's interesting. So when I'm under the the gun or have the biggest, biggest problems, the, the really big ones that you 
don't necessarily experience every year, but big yeah. problems. Yeah. I can go to sleep and in my subconscious mind, I can see my subconscious mind, but it comes up with answers, just like you're describing. Yeah. And you wake up and you remember it. You, you, yeah. you know, you, you, yeah. you, this happens in your sleep, but you yeah. don't have your conscious ego-driven mind getting in the way. Your subconscious mind is just processing yes. and coming up with possibilities. And it's, it's funny how that works. Yeah, it's just a lot more powerful, man. There's so many things you can't really, you know, express or explain in a way that everybody can understand it. You have to feel these things. You have to experience them. And I've had conversations with people that knew exactly what I'm talking about, right? And because they've experienced it. Right. Unless you experience it, it's really hard for us to like communicate it in words or verbalize it. It's very difficult. And that's what, I mean, being in nature and having answers that you're looking for show up just like that. How do you explain that to somebody that doesn't believe in that shit? Now, well, I've spent 40 years studying this and I think I'm to the point where I could almost teach someone how to do it. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> but it's um, two years ago, I couldn't. So it's, um, you know, you continue to evolve as a human in yeah. this, this flow state of being yeah. totally present and attuned in the moment. Yeah. Um, There's your masterclass right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, maybe I should because it's, you, you know, at some level, you can almost become a witness to yourself. Yeah. And, you know, being a, a, a high school and collegiate swimmer, I mean, in really big events, I've had experiences where I was actually left my body. So I was above the swimming pool of well, seeing my body in the state championship high school meet um, as an observer. But if you, if you can think about yourself, if you're in a, conversation or in a difficult challenge where um just think of it like an angel sitting on your shoulder so think about just kind of being right here watching yourself yes but not being here watching yourself right. and being in your heart and if you yes. just witness yourself you can almost you want to take out those neurological pathways and old programs that come up and get in the way the yes. things that fears create and you go well, what about if this or what if this happens well if you truly want to be creative this moment is not going to be like any moment you've ever experienced in your life. Yes. So show up and be in this moment and let the moment define what's going to happen and not influenced by any prior. So you got to, you hack your way into being present. And yeah. if you can just tune, tune up, turn off your, your mind that's going like this. Yes. So you can just be present in your heart. Yes. You're not thinking. It's yes. just, it's, it's a flow of consciousness. And yes. until you, once you've experienced that, then you know what I'm talking about. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I can attest to that, dude. I, I've had the exact same um, experience, not like the swimmer ex example you're giving me, this whole out of body experience you're talking about. I've actually learned how to do that. One of my buddies, Mateen uh, Tirani, he taught me this, is a breathing technique and you have to be in a certain state of mind and you, know, you have to be, um, in a certain, certain um, mode uh, to really kind of pull off this feat. So he taught me that one day uh, when I was in Mexico, again, this is, there's a lot happened in Mexico. <laughs> one of the things that just kind of jumped out. So the thing is, he, 
you can essentially experience this out-of-body experience. What it is is like pushing oxygen into your pineal gland, which is one gland that is like right in the middle of your brain. Right. When you do that, you essentially have almost like you lose consciousness for a second. Almost like you feel like you're not in your body, but you're there, but you're not in your body. I, I experienced that and now I can recreate that. I don't share this with very many people. My wife knows all about it. Um, I've been, and there are times when I'm like too much in my head where like I have a lot of stuff going on in my mind um, where I'm trying to solve problems, then I'm not able to do it. I, I'm, I, I would not be able to do it. But when I'm calm, when I'm like present, I don't have any of the garbage going around in my head. Then when I do that technique, it's a breathing technique and I press like right in, in under my sternum and I hold my breath a certain way. And then it all goes like, mm, and then I pass out for a few minutes or not minutes, but a few seconds. Yeah. And then I don't feel my body, but I'm there. Well, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I don't find that many people where I can have these kind of conversations, but you know, there's forms of meditation too, where your life force in Eastern traditions, they would call it the Kundalini is sleeping yeah, at the, at, down in your tailbone and you, you know, you get grounded and seated then you learn how to f liberate the kundalini, but it starts coming up through your seven chakras right. and your, your lower chakras are the ones that have all the emotions and the fears and the survival things that came from the early days when you're worried about the saber tooth tiger and right. how you're going to escape. <laughs> but, you know, you start pulling your, it comes up your spine yeah. and you, you know, you get it to your heart, then you get it through your throat chakra. Then, then you get into your pineal gland yeah. and, um, you learn how to pull the energy up, but yeah. you can also pull energy. The, the universe, the universe has a life force. Yes. And when you get where you, when you can spend some time meditating and getting really grounded, that life force, you can feel this energy pulsing. It yes. just pulses. It's almost like a, yes. a tuning fork yes. and you, it's a high, high, high frequency. Yes. But, um, there's also experiences you can have internally when you go within yes. um, uh, that are wild. You don't need psychedelics to experience wild things. And, you know, I used to meditate, you know, some days, four or five hours. Wow. And you, very interesting things can happen. I don't have that kind of time right now, but you yeah. learn how to hack it so you can do it in 45 minutes versus four hours. But, you know, that, that might be a, a conversation for another time maybe we'll do a um a youtube um audio and talk about how you get into the flow state and get some yeah. other people and have a, a powerful conversation and share some of these experiences but um yeah. you know yeah. i used to never share this with anyone because a lot of people can't even understand it right. but there's yeah. a um especially yeah. young people today they're they're interested and you know, if you can teach them that there's these states, these flow states, yes. um, and there's a lot of different ways to get there. Breath is the breath is by far the most effective way it is. to get in these flow states. And, you know, the, these flow states support any kind of mindset. Yeah. But if you can't get into these higher states of higher, you know, brain waves, and that's all what AmpX is really about is you know, Dave Asbury and Joe Dispenza. I, yeah. I can't wait to get these guys on Dave Asbury. Um, 
and I had some interesting conversations last year at A360. We never got to finish him, but yeah. you know, um, he's got 40, 40 years of Zen, which they do very cool stuff. So there's, there's lots of techniques that you can find a way, anyone, any of our viewers can find a way into a flow state, but it, it starts with opening your heart and being your authentic self and letting go of the past everything and all these emotions and fears that lurk in your neural pathways and yeah. just being present. And I mean, it. you said life is short in the beginning, my friend Madhu, and life is short. So to our viewers, um, you know, take the steps necessary to get out there and enjoy life and find your peace and your authentic self and follow your heart and whatever your professional and personal ambitions are, because life is too short. True that. Thanks for joining us on the Ampex podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure not to miss future episodes and please rate the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to our awesome production team, Lindsay Soderberg, social and digital marketing, Taylor Higgins, video production, and Seth Nielsen, marketing. See you next time.